This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Back in 2019, millions of us cheered when President Trump announced in his State of the Union address, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. But look at our country now that it's back in the hands of progressives. We've got gasoline prices and grocery prices skyrocketing. We have a supply chain crisis. Businesses are also struggling to find employees. Many are closing down altogether. And all this is President Biden's approval ratings are plummeting. And he's apologizing at the U.N. Climate change conference for President Trump's decision to leave the Paris Agreement, not to mention that infrastructure bill. So we are marching right back into socialism or the idea of socialism with the radical left in charge. Is there a way to stop it? Dr. Kevin Hassett joins us today. He is former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, serving in that role from 2017 through 2019. He also served as his senior advisor to President Trump and helped to guide the economic response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He is now a distinguished visitor fellow at the Hoover Institution and Managing Director of the Lindsay Group. Today we'll be discussing his new book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. And it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Hassett, for being with us today. Oh, thanks. You're very kind to invite me in. And please do call me, Kevin. Okay, very <laughs> I good. I really don't like the Dr. Hassett. Stuff. No problem. Just, you know, trying to give you... A, a... I know, you're being respectful. And some yes. people insist on it, like Dr. Jill Biden. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wouldn't equate you with her, so that's good news. Yeah. But well, thank you. Yes, well, we, we know, and you know very, very well, we have had a very challenging two years following the beginning of the pandemic. But I'm wondering what your assessment is of our nation's intentional economic drift. I mean, just in the last two years, Mm -hmm. not to mention what's going on right now with the infrastructure bill and some of the other nonsense we're facing. What do you think is going on from kind of a 20,000 foot perspective when you're looking at the Biden administration's recent moves? You know, thanks for the question. And, you know, this is really what the book Drift is about after, you know, beginning with a lot of inside uh, baseball about what was going on in the Trump administration. You know, one of the questions that comes up when you actually look at President Trump's policies is, you know, his uh, tax cuts and his deregulation uh, made it so that, you know, blue collar incomes grew faster than they had since World War II. African-American unemployment was the lowest it had been since World War II. Uh, Income inequality was declining. So if you were, you know, like a social justice seeking Democrat, you would think that you'd be celebrating Trump. But instead, (laughs) we know what they did, right? (laughs) Yes. And so I started to really study, like, what the heck is going on? And it's very chilling, and it's described in the drift. But basically, uh, really quickly, what's happened is that very far left, uh, radical, totalitarian socialists have taken over the universities. Uh, And they've basically run everybody who would defend free markets and free enterprise and the traditional American system off of campus. If I were to go give a talk on campus, what do you think the odds would be there'd be protests and people would be threatening me physically, right? Like about 100%. Yes. And these people 
uh, control than the media because the top you know kid from Harvard gets the job at the New York Times. So before you know it, everybody at the New York Times is basically indoctrinated into socialism, and they control uh, the conversation except for on the internet. And so the one of the points of the book is that the only reason we're not really uh, we haven't lost these people already is that Donald Trump used the internet to end around their control over the media. Uh, but now they're trying to shut him down. And so we're at a really crucial turning point in the history of our country where we're either going to you know, defeat these socialists, these totalitarians, or we're not. And and you're really beginning to see uh, – I promise not to filibuster. I really, no problem. <laughs> but, uh, but, but we're really beginning to see the socialism in you know everything that they do. So, for example, in the Build Back Better plan, which is the worst-named plan ever, right, because there's no building and there's no better. Yes. Um, the back part may be back to Obama, maybe. <laughs> um, but but in, in that plan, for example, they're building millions of houses. And, and so Joe Biden wants to become your landlord, just like if you went to East Germany or the Soviet Union, the government, you had to pay the government rent. You know, they're, they're starting a program, literally, where the government owns the means of production. They own the capital. They own the buildings that people live in, and they charge you rent. And, and, and what they want to do is they want to have control. This is why they didn't celebrate Donald Trump's victories. They want to have control so that they can tell you what to do and that they can like give the benefits to their friends, just like they do in corrupt socialist countries like Venezuela. And so, and so, you know, I've got a lot of original research in the book, some very deep dive stuff that identifies what's going on at these places. But, you know, a lot of conservatives whine about socialism, but they haven't really studied what it is and what's going on. And if we're going to fight it, we need to understand it. Exactly right. And especially when you look at some of the younger generations of America, who's, Americans really, who seem absolutely swooning, to be swooning over this idea of socialism, even though we have this long track record. All you have to do is open a book and study the Cold War and the period of time going back to 1917. It's pretty clear that socialism doesn't work. And even democratic socialism, which they like to trot out as being a more reasonable form of it, uh, they don't want to talk about the downsides of socialism just because they have this idea that there will be a nirvana where equity and inclusion will be universal. It's just a pipe dream. Well, yeah, and not only that, but if they really cared about equity and inclusion, then when equity and inclusion improved under Donald Trump, at the very least, at the very least, if that was your main concern, you might think, geez, I need to study why equity and inclusion (laughs) improved under Donald Trump. You know, what was it about tax cuts and deregulation that made the little guy better off? And, you know, maybe I don't like Donald Trump. Maybe I've got like alternative views about what we could do, but to simply reject it as a fact that it happened. And then, of course, uh, to crucify the man suggests that there's an ulterior motive, and there really is an ulterior motive. The ulterior motive is they want the government to control the means of production. They want the government to distribute the goods without them going through uh, a price system, you know, a capitalist system. They want to give you what you got to have, and they want to control uh, the stuff that makes stuff. It's just uh, stunning to watch this all unfold and so many Americans are falling for it. When you talk, though, about what you witnessed and experienced and participated in under President Trump, you reference a lot of these great economic policies that worked well. You know, you talk about how he used a tariff as a trade off. You talk about the real wage increases of more than six thousand dollars a year, the tax cuts, the regulatory relief. All of these things really did great for the economy and really affected average Americans. Why in the world? are we ricocheting between President Trump and President Biden? I mean, they're not even that close together at all when it comes to policy. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and, and again, um, they're reversing all these policies. And so what's going to happen is that, you know, ordinary folks are going to see their incomes decline. You know, real incomes have declined. That's like income uh, corrected for what happens to inflation have declined for most Americans this year. And the way to think about it is, if you you know, after you leave the gas station, how much money do you have left to buy stuff? Ugh. Right. It's really it's really <laughs> gone down a lot. Yeah. And and so that's what happens in socialism is that when, once uh, you socialize production, then production goes down. Um, and then the people get unhappy and the government becomes more ruthless. And, and that's why, you know, Hayek, uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote a very uh, famous book about how socialism always ends up with totalitarianism. And the reason is that the people revolt against this once they see what's going on. I, I really, really am stunned at stunned at the extent to which, though, the really, really far left socialist universities and media have driven Joe Biden. You know, I know Joe Biden. I've had lunch with Joe Biden. I actually thought that there was a chance that he would have some common sense. But they've driven Joe Biden to pursue 100 percent their agenda. Uh, yeah. He's you know, utterly, utterly uh, thrown himself in with AOC and the rest of the people on the left. Uh, his bill looks a lot like the Green New Deal. His tax hikes would give us the highest marginal tax rate in the developed world. So there's no country in the OECD. Not France, not Sweden, you know, there's nobody, not New Zealand, there's nobody who would have a higher tax rate than us if Joe Biden's plan and Nancy Pelosi's plan is adopted. And this is something that, that I think that middle of the road Democrats and ordinary Americans really don't understand that their party has been taken over by people who are ruthless socialists. And, and again, in my book, I, I document very carefully how this happened. I've got a lot of ideas about about how to fight against it. Well, right. There's so much I want to ask you about, including some of these policies that we've seen come under the Biden administration that are so destructive to our nation because we don't want to be a socialist country. And we have a duty, I believe, as patriotic Americans to make sure that doesn't happen. Kevin Hassett with us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back talking about his book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499. 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It is so important for us to stay the course as a country and not drift into socialism. But unfortunately, that seems to be the direction we're headed. Kevin Hassett is with us, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. His book is called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. And it's very interesting, Kevin, when you look at this infrastructure bill that the House just passed, for example, Joe Biden actually says it puts the U.S. on a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century. What is your reaction to that response from the president when you look at what's actually in this thing? Well, you know, basically, uh, obviously what they're doing is they're pushing um, the idea that if the government central plans and decides where everybody should spend their money and comes up with the, you know, they've got huge subsidies for alternative energy and so on and picks the winners and losers in the alternative energy space, then they're going to be better and smarter than the free market. And, and so, you know, let me tell you, uh, there's no country on earth that's as committed to socialism right now in the developed world, certainly Venezuela's more, Cuba's more, uh, as the Democrats in the White House right now. And so they think that if the government takes over the energy sector and, you know, shuts down pipelines mm. and makes gas really expensive, that, that honestly, Goodness, right? Like, suppose that, that you were all in on climate change and you really thought we felt we had to stop consuming fossil fuels. But even then, you, once the price of those things were driven up by your policies, you should let the free market decide what the next step is, right? right? But instead, what they're doing is they're picking the winners. They're saying, oh, well, if you get, you know, a Tesla, we're going to give you $12,000. <laughs> oh, and by the way, we're going to give, you know, $88 billion. That was the last count I saw uh, to Amtrak. Um, oh no! Most of it's just going to unions. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> right? of course. But but the bottom line is that it's all about power and the belief that central planning will uh, take us, uh, give us a, a step up. But it won't. It won't. In fact, it's the reverse. Well, now you talk in your book about Washington bureaucrats and how much you had to fight and President Trump had to fight during your time in the White House when, you know, the deep state, we like to refer to them as the deep state. But how much of a problem was that when you were trying to instill common sense policies and roll back a lot of the madness? How tough was that fight? Oh, it, it was an incredible fight. And obviously, you know, President Trump, who's about the most courageous person I've ever worked with, he's clearly the most courageous person I've ever worked with. You know, he, he faced the brunt of it. But, you know, everywhere you turned, um, everybody was working against you. So, so even like when I was uh, uh, nominated uh, for my position and I had to go through Senate confirmation, the uh, deep state people slow rolled my paperwork for months and months and months mm. just to make it so that President Trump didn't have an economic advisor. I didn't wow. get confirmed until September after he was inaugurated, even though he chose me in January. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's that. But 
the thing is, though, that despite those negatives, President Trump was amazingly effective at getting stuff done. And in the deregulatory front, for example, uh, he, he originally said that we should take one off the books when when we put one on. But in fact, we almost put none on and we took thousands and thousands of them off the books. And we estimated at CEA that that had a huge positive effect on the economy. But every time we did that, of course, there's some uh, deep state regulator somewhere who is fighting you every step of the way. And what President Trump did is he empowered us to stand up to those guys. But the other thing he did, and this is something that's not covered on the outside, but is covered in detail of the book, um, is, is that he really built a team of the high esprit de corps, which is something that you probably can sort of sense when you look at, say, Larry Gudlow on TV yep. these days. Um, and, and the way he did it was that he is a little bit of a different person at the Oval Office. I was in the Oval Office for probably hundreds of hours when I was uh, in the White House. And he's a different person there than you see on TV and, and a much softer person. You know, one of my favorite stories that really shocks people that it, that it happened was that um, my job was to, very often to brief the president on the economic data because I'm, you know, the dismal scientist. And one day I was uh, in Paris doing some meeting, and so my chief of staff, uh, a lady named DJ Norquist, had to go brief the president instead. And, and she was really nervous about it because she had never briefed him uh, on her own. And so she got up early in the morning. She's walking out to the car. And um, she stepped in a pothole and broke her leg because she was so distracted. Oh. You could imagine that's I do that too, right? Like my <laughs> mind is like focusing on this, and yeah. all of a sudden I do something that's really you know sad yes. <laughs> because I'm too distracted. And so, so but DJ limps into her car, limps to or, you know parks at the White House, limps into the Oval, uh, briefs the president on the jobs report, and then limps back to her car, drives to the hospital, and her leg gets put in. Unreal. And they said her like. And when the president found out about this, he sent her the sweetest note. You know, basically saying, you know, hey, next time go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was a side that all of us on the inside saw of him. That's like, I think, you know, in the first half of the book, I go into a lot of stories like that. That makes it all the more kind of infuriating that when his policies worked and the economy got better and income inequality went down and the wages grew faster than they have uh, since the Second World War, the, this guy who, who really deep down inside, uh, I think, towards his staff at a heart of gold, uh, was you know absolutely crucified by these people. Yes, he um, was. And, and, and again, I think that without digging into what the drift is and understanding you know what's who controls our universities and how organized are they and so on then you won't really understand why that happened. Wow, that's really something. And that's that's a good story for us to all hear because we all sense that from some other moments that we've seen publicly. But you're right. I mean, he had to be tough, but also he was very kind to people. And, you know, I'm interested to ask you because you mentioned Venezuela and a lot of people have been citing Venezuela of late as they go into their grocery stores and see all of the empty shelves, even Walmart and Target around us are having the same problem. This has been going on for quite a while now, the supply chain crisis. Clearly, this was exacerbated by the pandemic. That kind of messed everything up. But at the same time, you have an administration where Pete Buttigieg, who allegedly is supposed to be working to solve this kind of thing, is on paternity leave. They just don't seem that concerned. And I'm wondering what you make of the supply chain crisis. Even some truckers are saying it's not us. I mean, we're there. We'll take the stuff. It's just things aren't moving the way they should. How do you see this whole crisis and, and what's really going on right. here? Well, I think that the, the main thought is that when socialists take over the country, then the shelves end up being empty. Yep. And, you know, I've, I've uh, covered in the book a lot of, you know, examples of that. And, and so when the, when the cupboards start to be empty, 
what does the socialist government do? Well, they give you excuses. Yep. And, and and so right now it's a supply chain disruption. But you know, what if the supply chain disruption continues into next year and into next summer? And uh, what if next Christmas you have trouble getting presents for your kids? You know, the bottom line is that's what's going to happen if these policies are pursued, because what they're doing is they're uh, giving everybody uh, lots of cash. They're paying people not to work, right. uh, which really increases the demand for products. And so, you know, products are going to come off the shelves when they're put on the shelves. But they're also attacking business. They've got the business, business the biggest business tax hikes that we've ever had in America, uh, giving us the highest uh, tax rate in the developed world. And so, if you attack supply and cut back supply while you're stimulating demand, then what happens is you don't have enough supply. You got way too much demand. Prices go up a lot, and the shelves are empty. Yeah. That's what's happening. It's very disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, I even remember going to the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union and going into the big shoe store in Red Square. They had two pairs of shoes. I mean, it's reminding me of that. Not quite that level, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was in East Berlin, too, uh, you know, when, when it was East Berlin. <laughs> I can tell you it was similar. I can remember I went to a restaurant and, and it was just like there were no, was no food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one thing on the menu. Unreal. So how do we turn things around. Clearly, what happened in Virginia of late was a shot in the arm for a lot of people saying, okay, okay, there's still some clear thinking Americans who are not going down this road. But absent, you know, a a huge political turnover, how do you see things in terms of Americans continuing to back capitalism over socialism when we see these dismal statistics, given the research on younger generations of Americans? Right. Well, I think that the first thing we have to do, and that's what you and I are are doing right now, is we need to dig into understanding the drift and recognize how powerful it is and how a large swath of Americans have been basically brainwashed into thinking that free enterprise is a bad idea and that socialism is a good idea. And one metric of this is that, you know, there's never been a president, I don't think, that had a worse year than Joe Biden, right? If you think about Afghanistan, you know, giving $85 worth of our stuff to the enemy, um, the, you know, inflation taking off, you know, all the things that have gone wrong for him, you know, that if anybody in the U.S. had a worse year than Joe Biden, it would have been Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, who, in addition to having his state kind of fall apart, had this terrible, terrible catastrophe in Loudoun County, where they brutalized this dad of this girl who was abused at school, who just showed up at a school board meeting to complain about it. And then, you know, the the attorney general even, you know, said the guy's a terrorist, basically, implicitly. Yes. And so, so despite that, virtually every Democrat voted for Terry McAuliffe. Yeah. You, you know, so Terry McAuliffe won by just a wee little bit, despite all of those negatives. And so I think that that documents how serious the struggle is. That, that you know, how, how could people, like, if you really care about what's going on in the world and what's going on with, like, ordinary people's incomes and what they have to spend on food after they go to the gas station, then you would have thought, okay, well, I need to send a message to these guys that they're not doing a good job. And, you know, Glenn Youngkin is a reasonably moderate Republican, so I should at least, like, support him a little bit because it'll tell people I don't like the socialism that they're pursuing right now. But instead, almost no Democrats did that. And so I think that it's a really, really, really scary time in our country because if people are willing to vote for Terry McAuliffe after all that and after what Joe Biden said to the country this year, then it means that we really, really are close to losing the struggle. And the reason we're close to losing the struggle, and I go into this in depth in the book, The Drift, is that you know, the left controls the universities, they control the media. Donald Trump was able able to uh, have an end around play around that through the Internet. 
but now they're shutting down conservative voices on the Internet. Uh, and Brooke Rollins, who, who ran the Domestic Policy Council for President Trump, has started a think tank, which, by the way, is the fastest growing think tank in the country, called the America First Policy Institute. And they're, they've launched a lawsuit to try to get President Trump back on social media. But they just set up a website where they ask people to put up their stories if they've been canceled on social media. And they're really, really close to having 100,000 stories oh of people who basically say, yeah, if I speak up for a free enterprise, then they cancel me. Um, and, and so, you know, what they are trying to do is control the conversation, uh, withdraw respectability from anyone who would defend, you know, the traditional American system, yep. and then grab power uh, for themselves so that they can control the means of production. Wow, we need to fight it for sure. Read the drift. Kevin Hassett, thank you so much, Kevin, for being with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. A quick thank you to each and every one of you who have been helping our great partners, Heart for Lebanon. What a great ministry this is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going out throughout the refugee camps in Lebanon because of this ministry, and it is an exciting time to see the Lord at work in the lives of people from Muslim backgrounds. It's incredible what the Lord is doing over in that part of the world. And every day it encourages me because I look around the United States where there's so much hardness of heart to the gospel, and it just encourages me beyond belief to understand that the Lord is working in hearts that are soft and hearts that are ready to receive him as Lord and Savior. Here's how it works. Heart for Lebanon is there where there is so much need at a time of absolute crisis in Lebanon. The economy's in the tank and people are in a terrible, terrible state. The whole country is falling apart, basically. Your gift of $116 will provide one family with survival essentials for four months and they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have Bible studies that people are involved and they have churches now in the refugee camps, if you can imagine that. And giving those survival essentials to these refugee families is just a way to open the door to share Christ with them. And boy, are they responding. You can also help out with a gift of $29 per month. If you're able to give anything at all, here's the number you can call. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for being with us. Okay, let's move into the culture wars. I'm kind of laughing a little bit to myself, strangely to myself, because it wasn't that long ago when you had certain evangelicals bemoaning the culture wars. Oh, the culture wars are over. You guys just need to get over it. Fighting the culture wars is so 1985. Well, it's never the case that the cultural wars are over as long as there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. You will always have 
wars, spiritual wars, until Christ returns. So you will have culture wars of some type until that final day. It's an interesting piece that Michael Barone put together, and this is the headline, Elections Show Conservatives, Not Leftists, Winning on Cultural Issues. Now, I understand what he's getting at. He's referencing what happened in Virginia. He says in the Virginia exit poll, 84% said that parents should have a lot or some say in what schools teach, as opposed to what Terry McAuliffe was saying about parents for several weeks before the election took place for governor. And he was saying parents shouldn't have a say in what their kids learn. So, all right, fine. I, I acknowledge completely that that was a win. That was a win. Parents rose up and said, the schools are not God. We are the parents of these children. And of course, we should have a say in what's in the schools. And you shouldn't be able to silence us at school board meetings. And you shouldn't be able to railroad us with critical race theory and all the rest. This is kind of where he's going with this. And he says, for parents, the education of their children is a serious matter, not a phony trumped up issue. And more generally, cultural issues are more important to Americans on both sides of the cultural divide than economics. Now, I agree with that. Although Biden Democrats have argued their economic policies would help the little guy, an ABC Ipsos poll found that only 25% believe his reconciliation bill would help people like them. 32% say they would hurt, and it leaves nearly half, 43%, not seeing much difference. A similarly pervasive skepticism explains polls showing majorities against passing Obamacare in 2010 and against repealing Obamacare in 2018. Okay. In contrast, attitudes on cultural issues are more firmly rooted in personal experience and moral principles. He says liberals and progressives are vulnerable on cultural issues because their search for the latest underdog cause to champion, while sometimes producing results widely accepted, sometimes puts them in lasting opposition to large majorities of voters. I like being encouraged. I like hearing that leftists are losing on cultural issues. But let's be frank. When you look at the numbers of people in this country, for example, who now support so-called same-sex marriage, those numbers are insane how high they are across the board. Now, I knew, and I'm sure you did too, that at some point the Republican Party would have to grapple with this. They were dipping their toe in the water a little bit under Trump, and I didn't like it. He did fight on the transgender bathroom issue in the public schools, and that was a good thing. He didn't go all in against homosexual activists. He fought enough to make everybody happy who voted for him or pretty much everybody happy, but he didn't fight so much that he could do much of anything. We're in a post-Obergefell world. You had five unelected judges make the decision that it's anti-dignity to not allow two men to be married or two women to be married, even though that defies what the actual definition of marriage is. You can't have a marriage with anything between uh, other than a man and a woman. It's not a marriage. You could call it something else. At one time, people were trying to say, let's have civil unions. So they'll have their own way of being together, but it's not marriage. And they just, they chucked it all and just, no, just got create gay marriage. Which brings me to what I consider to be a major development in the culture wars concerning the Republican Party. Did you hear about this? 
This is via the Daily Wire. The Republican National Committee announced its first RNC Pride Coalition this past weekend in a partnership with the Log Cabin Republicans to garner support in advance of the midterms next year. The partnership was announced during the Log Cabin Republican Spirit of Lincoln Gala at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Mm-hmm. According to Fox, RNC Chairwoman Rona McDaniel said she was committed to working with the group as a partner in the fight to save the country's future. Yep. McDaniel said conservatives in Log Cabin don't just share our vision for a free, secure and prosperous America. They enrich it by adding unique perspectives to our party. Oh, yeah. And recruiting even more diverse candidates and supporters to join our cause. Fabulous. Are we going to have the first Republican non-binary person running for Senate? And then we're all going to throw our hats in the air and rejoice and do a jig in the streets because finally we have the first Republican non-binary person. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm just saying, look where this is headed, folks. Use your head. When you have this kind of activism, it goes somewhere. It isn't static. It doesn't take a nap. It doesn't roll over and die. All you're doing is you've let the camel put his nose under the tent. And listen, I'm not saying that anybody in America who is involved in homosexual behavior or any of the transgender stuff or any of the long list of alphabet uh, that, that comprises the latest LGBTQRSTUVW, you know, that whole thing. Whoever's on the alphabet train, fine, you can vote for whoever you want. But the problem comes when you start pandering to people who honestly have a completely different worldview and have a completely different ethic than a lot of the people who make up the base of the Republican Party. You can vote. No problem. Everybody's welcome. Big Ten. You want to vote for a Republican? You can. If you want to vote for an independent, you can. If you want to vote for a Democrat, I don't know why you would, but you can. You can. This is America. I'm not saying anybody should be excluded from voting for whoever they want to. The problem is who gets power within a party then begins to change it and begins to move it in a direction that they deem responsible. So how long until the Republican Party caves and says we're for gay marriage too? Because we can no longer ignore that voting block. How long until they say we want to support people who want to self-identify as fill in the blank? We want to support people who want surgeries to mutilate themselves so they can become the opposite sex, even though that's physically and epistemologically impossible. How long? If you don't think this is coming for the GOP, you haven't been watching and you haven't been paying close attention because it is going to come. It is going to come unless there is enough of an opposition race to say, listen, everybody can be here if you want to vote for whoever the Republican is, but we're not going, going in the direction of pro-homosexuality. And what will the response of Christians be if and when the GOP gets to that point? Because I think most Christians are of the opinion that between the two parties, there's one that is overwhelmingly closer to a biblical worldview, decidedly not perfect, but closer to a biblical worldview in the voters' minds than the other. What do they do? What do you do? I don't know. We're not there yet, but I do know the former first lady, Melania Trump, got the Spirit of Lincoln Award at this gala, and she was praised by the log cabin Republicans for her acceptance to be the guest of honor after leaving the White House and saying that it only reaffirms her unwavering support for the LGBT community. The writing is on the wall, Christians. We'll see what happens. There's more to come. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today.
The Ministry of Preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that first ultrasound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life, and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Speaking of the culture wars, I was referencing before we went to the break about the fact that the Republican National Committee has announced its first RNC Pride Coalition. Here it comes. Here it comes. When you have a big enough block of people, citizenry, who believe that homosexuality is no biggie and gay marriage, so-called, is no biggie, and all of this stuff is perfectly fine, love is love, then I guess you need to pay attention to the winds of change and you need to adjust your approach to politics. And for the GOP, I don't know what's going to stop them from becoming pro-gay marriage. I don't know what's going to stop them. I, because politics for too many people, by definition, has nothing to do with principle. It has to do with pragmatism. It has to do with how do we get the votes? How do we steal votes from the other party? How do we make some kind of political hay out of issues that are either popular or growing in popularity so we get more people to vote for us? I know what, I and mean, you can just picture what they're doing behind the scenes. I know what we need. We, we need to emphasize that all Americans want a strong economy and strong national security. And those are things around which we can compartmentalize and we can co- coalesce. Okay, but what happens is when the activists and people who are already forming groups of LGBT Republicans, they're activists of a different sort. They are probably of different mindsets on different extremes of ideology. But by and large, you're, you're, you're going to get the activism and then you're going to have to cave on certain things. I don't know which certain things you're going to have to cave on. But even when Richard Grinnell was in the Trump administration, there are a lot of things he's good on and he's, you know, he, he's good on a lot of things. But on the issue of homosexuality, then it became about promoting homosexuality and, and fighting against certain laws regarding homosexuality across the globe. 
it was a GOP administration. We got to keep these things in view. There will be a tipping point, I think, for a lot of us as Christians, if and when this country gets as bad as it looks like it might get, where we're just going to have to say, I can't vote for these people. I, I, I just can't vote. I can't vote. And I believe in voting. I think you should vote. Absolutely should vote. We're going to have to have those conversations down the road about lesser of two evils. And at what point do you say lesser of two evils is a bridge too far? I mean, I don't know. We're not there yet. And I'm just doing a little conjecture. I don't know where it's going to end up. But I'm telling you, when you have RNC Pride Coalition, it's not going well. So stay tuned. Speaking of the culture wars, I got to get this in as well. Matt Bay over at the Washington Post wrote an interesting article. Usually the Washington Post is absolutely horrid. But this particular opinion piece was allowed in. I don't know if these people knew what they were putting in here. And the headline is Paging Dr. Orwell, the American Medical Association takes on the politics of language. Yep. What's going on? The American Medical Association and the Association of American Medical Colleges have just issued a manifesto titled Advancing Health Equity, a guide to language, narrative and concepts. Oh, goody. Let's leave aside, he says, for the moment, the obvious question of why it's the AMA's business to lecture anyone about what counts as acceptable language. Uh, As far as I know, the folks at Fowler's Modern English Usage have never issued a guide to performing thyroid surgery. Be that as it may, the country's most powerful medical associations have decided that the dominant narratives of inequality in healthcare must be named, disrupted, and corrected, according to an introduction that reads like it came from Mao's Little Red Book. The long list of words and phrases the AMA now prescribes includes marginalized communities, that's a no-no, morbidly obese, can't say that, the homeless. Well, what are you supposed to people without homes? That's better than the homeless? That's what less means when you tack it on to a noun. You can't say inmates, you can't say individuals, you can't say ethnic groups, you can't say racial groups, and you can't say anything that could be related to violent imagery. So you can't say target communities, you can't say tackle issues. You have to use terms like this. Oh, this will really roll off your tongue. Groups that are struggling against economic marginalization. Yeah, that's much better. You can say people with severe obesity. How is that better than morbidly obese? It's the same thing. People who are experiencing homelessness. It's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, also expunged are the words Caucasian, minority, vulnerable, white paper, black male, black ball, and slave. That's going to be awkward because if you get back into the discussions that the progressives want to have about reparations, wouldn't you have to say the word slave at some point? Slavery. I don't know. The AMA is against it, though, folks. The AMA is going to tell you how to talk. It's ridiculous. Here's something else. For instance, the AMA offers some sample well-intentioned sentences that might be problematic, along with alternative sentences that use equity-focused language. Oh, this is going to be a treat. You might be tempted to say something like this. This is from the AMA. Here's the sentence. For too many, prospects for good health are limited by where people live, how much money they make, or discrimination they face. No, no, no. You can't say that. What was wrong with that sentence? Oh, it was wrong. Here's what you should say. Decisions by landowners and large corporations increasingly centralizing political and financial power wielded by a few limit prospects for good health and well-being for many groups. This guy says, I swear I'm not making this up. The AMA does not get to tell us all how to talk, period. 
I have often wondered why we conservatives don't do some kind of issuing of guidelines on what everybody is not allowed to say from our perspective. That could be a very interesting list. You know, what would be at the top of my list is you got to stop calling pro-lifers anti-abortion and calling pro-aborts, you know, pro-choice. That made me crazy. That made me crazy when I was a reporter because that was AP style. You had to say anti-abortion. I said, but what you're doing, if you let one group have the word pro and the other group have the word anti, you've put a positive connotation on one group and a negative connotation on the other. By design, by design. Why don't you say pro-life and pro-death? Oh, well, that's not fair. Okay, anti-abortion is not fair in terms of how you are labeling people. They're anti, they're anti, they're haters. They're No, they love babies and they love women and they don't want either to die in the course of getting an abortion, which is murder and it's evil. So this is where it is. Don't comply with this, okay? Don't comply with this. We have got to stop using the language that the left says we have to use and we have to speak any old way we want. We should speak the truth and love as Christians. We should not let any filthy talk come out of our mouths and those kinds of prescriptions are very important as people who belong to the Lord. But Forget it. Don't play the communist game. Just don't. Don't go along with what they're trying to tell you to do and and say, okay, tell me again. Can I say the word the? No, no. There are overtones to that. Just forget that. I'm going to say what I'm going to say and you can just deal with it. What are you going to do? Arrest me? I give it five years. Who knows? Speaking of medical stuff, I got to get this in. Wonderful news. This three-judge panel at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has temporarily blocked OSHA's vaccine mandate, saying that petitioners give cause to believe there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate. And I believe it's at the Eighth Circuit that 11 states are suing. So people have filed a lot of lawsuits against this. And there are some ministries involved in fighting back, including the American Family Association and Answers in Genesis. They are involved in petitioning the United States Courts of Appeals for the Fifth and Sixth Circuits to review the Biden administration's federal vaccine mandate for employers with over 100 employees. This is via uh, the uh, First Liberty Institute. I, You know, this is the thing. Think how duped we were. Think how duped we were. 15 days to slow the spread. Now it's you either force people to put chemicals in their body against their will or fire them. And we, the federal government, who have absolutely no, no right to do this under the Constitution, because anything that is not specifically outlined in the Constitution, giving the federal government specific cause and specific rights to do what it can do for the republic, is left to the states. Tenth Amendment. It's left to the states. Federalism. It's not constitutional to do what they're doing, and they don't care. They don't care because they will do whatever they want to do, and then they will duke it out in court and hope that they get some progressive judge who's going to go along with them. That's their strategy beginning to end. And we'll see whether or not this is actually going to go the distance to the Supreme Court. I would imagine if they get another circuit court saying the opposite, then you're going to have probably a Supreme Court case. And I don't know how the Supreme Court will rule. I don't know. I know we have Coney Barrett and we've got Kavanaugh, but who knows? Who knows? These guys have made a horrible decision in the Bostock decision. So you never know what they're going to do. You never know. But I'm glad that people are fighting back against this. It's absolutely mind boggling that we're at the point where not only that the federal government is trying this kind of unconstitutional garbage, 
but that people aren't rising up by the millions to say we will not comply. Even if you've had the vaccine, you should be one of those people. Out of principle, the government does not have a right to tell you to take an experimental vaccine. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And if we love freedom, we better fight for it. Thank you for being with us. We've got to go, but we'll see you next time right here on Janet Mefford Today. Thank you so much and God bless. Thank you.